Lord, we're grateful that we get to serve you. We're grateful that we get to give. We're grateful that we get to give our children over to you. We're grateful that we get to do good and useful things. We're grateful. And so we offer ourselves up to you. We do that in song as we sing together. We also do that as we dedicate our children. We do that as we listen to ancient texts that become new for us. We listen to that as we practice coming around a table to make space. Space for our neighbor, space for our children, space for our grandparents, space even for our enemy. So we ask that you would help us to do that in your mercy and your grace and help us to be shaped in the way of Jesus. And this is what we pray in his strong name. Amen. Good evening. My name is Mikhail, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. But I am here because I have found people that I love, um, and they love me. So in just a moment, we will read scripture together from 2 Timothy chapter 1. We have ushers with Bibles, so if you like to read on paper and you don't have paper with you, just raise your hand, wave it around. You can borrow one. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can take it with you. We have English and Spanish Bibles for those whose heart language are in Spanish or those who are practicing Spanish. So once you have a Bible or tablet or phone or whatever you want to use to read with, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It is toward the end of the New Testament. It will also be on the wall for us to read together. And we will be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. So I invite you to stand together as we honor the reading of God's word. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. And I am writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord, give you grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy, I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now, he has made all of this plain to us. By the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior, he broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. 
And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. And that is why I am suffering here in prison. But I am not ashamed of it. For I know the one in whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So we say together, thanks be to God. We have been traveling through the writings of First and Second Timothy, these letters of Paul to Timothy for the last couple of weeks. And we know that they have been full of good, hard words and just hard, hard words sometimes. Uh, but these words in Second Timothy um, are even more personal, maybe even more pointed. This is the last piece of writing that Paul left in his lifetime that the church still has access to anyway. He was uh, in prison in Rome, and um, sometime after this letter, not long after this letter, he was executed by the legitimately crazy emperor Nero, who was pretty much a sociopath and did all kinds of horrendous, terrible things. And so Paul is right in the middle of that history. Timothy, who he's writing to, is a young pastor, pastoring the church in Ephesus, and Paul is mentoring from a distance, although they've had a very long and close relationship with one another. And the whole of 2 Timothy is kind of reading almost as Paul's prayer journal. These are Paul's deepest hopes and dreams and longings and requests that he has made on Timothy's behalf. And so it's not really hidden from us. If we were to ask what the thesis is or what the main point of of Paul's writing and Paul's prayers for Timothy, it would be that Timothy be faithful. That's pretty clear. It's all over. And reading between the lines, we can also tell that it's going to require a lot of courage, some bravery to be the kind of faithful that Paul is urging Timothy to be because it seems that being faithful means there's a lot of swimming upstream going on. And so faithful courage is on display in Paul himself, who's writing away, wasting in prison. But it doesn't seem that he's bothered by this, oddly. And it's because he has said, I know, I believe in the one that I have trusted in. And, and that catches me I think I see in Paul that, that bedrock. I know why he's there. I know why he's doing what he's doing. And maybe you, like me, have had conversations with elders who have this tenacious faith that they are just sure that the, chart, that the course they have been charting is, is the right one. 
No matter what comes, no matter what grief, no matter what uh, difficulty, or no matter who has a different opinion, they know that they know that they know that they know. Which I think is beautiful on one hand, but there's also a part of me that says, are you crazy? Is dementia setting in a little bit? Do you, are you sure? Like, are you, are you, uh, is this real or like, is this like a sentimental, foolish sort of thing? Can we really trust Paul's trust? Or maybe it's too taboo to distrust someone who's written so much of scripture. So can we really trust the trust that our grandparents have had? I think it is difficult sometimes because I don't know about you, but there are some things that I absolutely love about my grandparents. And then there are some things that I, I, that make me cringe and Paul, God love him. He got some things that I, I'd like to talk to him about and what he's writing about slaves and women and some other things that I, I just, I don't know. So Paul trusts that he's in the right place for the right reason and he knows that he knows that he knows that he knows that he knows, but is that enough for us? I think it's a fair question. And while I have wrestled through this text in my own life and my own prayers, I invite you into that as well. You might not feel that we're sent out here with a pretty bow wrapped on top. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily what needs to happen every time we preach. But I invite you. I will say for myself, I think it is telling. It makes me trust Paul's perspective more. The fact that he says, I trust Jesus, rather than he says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm a little bit leery when people recommend themselves as fully, wholly worthy of my trust. But... I also have questions about how I know that Jesus can be trusted. I haven't seen him with my eyes. What is unique, I think, a, a unique gift to the church about Paul is that Paul didn't see Jesus with his eyes either. Paul refers to himself as an apostle, just like the, the 12 or the 11, who followed Jesus in life and witnessed the resurrection and all of that. But Paul says he was an apostle as one untimely born. He came a little late to the party when Jesus kind of thrust himself into Paul's life when he was on the road to Damascus ready to haul Christians into prison. And Paul's life got turned upside down. And from that kind of odd humble beginning, Paul has carved out his stance that he knows that he knows that he knows that he knows that he knows. And so I say, hmm, maybe, maybe I can too. 
On one hand, if we're looking at Paul's life to find clues about the faithful Christian journey, well, I think we can pretty much give an answer, right? That can be tied up in a neat little bow, mystery solved. (laughs) It seems that if we want to live a courageously faithful life, then all we need to do is trust Jesus. Done. Easy. But trust is not that easy, right? It doesn't come easy. And it particularly doesn't come easy to us who are living in America in 2019, The Pew Research Center has been studying Americans' level of trust for their leaders over the last few years. And it probably is not surprising to anyone in here, but they have discovered that America's trust levels are at an all-time low. Researchers asked questions about the essential building blocks of trust, like competence and honesty and benevolence of certain organizations and individuals. They asked about factors like empathy and openness and integrity and accountability. And while this research was done, it's been recently published, but the questions were asked in late 2018, I would venture to say that the responses could be even lower in in October of 2019. They asked questions like, do leaders care about people like me? People in my situation of life, people with my skin color, people with my degree, people with my job. Do leaders provide fair and accurate information to the public? Do leaders handle resources appropriately? I got to hand it to our teachers in the room because of all of the various types of public, national, and religious leaders that were asked questions about, K through 12th grade principals scored the highest in each category. Bravo. We trust you 70%. Members of Congress and tech companies scored the lowest. Um, The high end of those responses was that we trust them about 20% of the time. And then journalists and religious leaders are right in the thick of things in the middle. We trust ourselves about 50% of the time. And there were some really sad telling statistics in this study as well, like that 81% of Americans believe that members of Congress behave unethically all or most of the time, and that 68% of, or 69% of um, American adults believe that religious leaders behave unethically all or most of the time, and that it's 66% for local elected officials. And then, when asked if Americans believe whether these leaders who were acting unethically were being held accountable for their behavior, the answer across the board was a resounding no. So, in this cultural moment, we are a people who do not trust the people representing us, or leading us, or protecting us. And we also don't trust our governing systems to hold those leaders that we don't trust accountable. And this even includes the church. I'm sure that we all have stories. I received stories just this week. I was a part of a story myself where a church that I had entrusted something to uh, handled the situation in a way that I thought you know, could have been handled a whole lot better. And I did not feel that they handled resources appropriately or gave timely Um, 
of uh, information to the public, and that we don't necessarily care about people like me, but care about the bottom dollar or the attendance records. So I'm not a historical or sociological scholar by any means, but as I look around our kind of climate that we're in right now, I think we're in a crisis of trust. We as a people do not know who to believe, and maybe worse yet, we don't think that we can believe anyone. It's not just who we choose to trust, it's who can we trust It feels like there's a foundation that we've been trying to build on and we keep moving to different spots hoping to find a foundation that doesn't crumble, but we haven't found one yet. And I confess that in 2019 America, this crisis of trust can extend to Jesus because it is hard to trust in a Jesus that is used to defend the powerful rather than protect and proclaim freedom for the powerless. It is hard to trust a Jesus who is credited for partisan political victories, which only further divide our fractured country. And it is hard to trust a Jesus whose spokespeople, religious leaders, Americans think are, uh, who, who have unethical behavior 69% of the time. This is a hard climate in which to trust Jesus. For one thing, because there's a lot of different representations of who this Jesus actually is. And so we distrust people who misuse Jesus. But then, wouldn't you know it, we also have a hard time trusting those who because they have trusted Jesus, end up at the bottom of the pile. Because, you know, we have always, humanity always wants to distance ourselves from people who are on the outs. People who have been strategically silenced or punished by the powers that be. And... Sometimes, even subconsciously, we move a little sideways. We're careful when we say their names out loud. We won't repost certain stories. We won't be in public reading certain books if this person has been maligned or discredited by this body or this body. That's just the way of things. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus because the powers that be turned him out and called him a traitor and accused him of treason and then they dealt him the ultimate blow of shame. And Paul is now writing with history replaying itself. And the same thing is about to happen to him. And there's a thing about about our revolutionaries We love them when they stir up trouble, and we love them even for the first couple of months that they land themselves in jail. But after a while, you just become another raggedy, skinny, pathetic inmate. And nobody wants that person as their leader. 
Nobody wants to be the one claiming that another inmate's sob story is the real deal. But Paul says, do not be ashamed of me. For the same reason that I am not ashamed of the gospel that got me to this place, the two are woven tightly together. And when we see them as the same fabric, it maps out a whole new reality for us. Remember the reasons that we are distrustful of those in power, that they don't care about people like us, that they don't provide fair and accurate information to the public, that they don't handle resources responsibly, that they act unethically and then can get away with it. Well, those aren't new problems. And it was Jesus It was Jesus who spoke those things to the people who were abusing their powers among the people who were abused by those powers. And Jesus' actions and teaching revealed the moral bankruptcy of not only their political system, but a religious system that had married the political system to get power. And I don't know that either have changed a whole lot in the last 2019 years. And all of a sudden, the people who, saw a, who, who were uh, distrustful of leadership saw a leader that did care about people like us, a, per, a leader who spoke surprisingly honest truth in clear language, no matter who was in the crowd, and a leader who gave away resources instead of taking them, a leader who not only acted ethically himself, but also revealed the unethical behavior of those who prided themselves in being the most righteous. So, yeah, of course they killed him. That is what the powers that be do to those who make them look foolish. It's not good, it's not pretty, but this is the way that it has always been. What makes Jesus different to me as I watch his story and what has made Jesus worthy of my trust is that unlike other leaders who gather people around them and then push their followers into the political machine first. Jesus stepped out and walked in all by himself. He didn't ask anyone else to do it for him. He didn't take anyone else down with him. He went alone in complete defiance of the way the powers that be frame reality. And he doesn't even argue with them about it. He doesn't try to keep himself from death. He doesn't try to protect himself from shame. He just willingly walks into outer darkness, feeling the weight and pain of shame. And then, illumination. The light goes on in the dark, and we hear Paul's words saying, now this Jesus has made all of this plain to us by appearing As Christ Jesus, our Savior, he broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. 
The door that was closed with such finality now swings wide open. And the powers that be are just wrong. They have said all along that there is nothing more powerful than death. And then they wield the heaviest weapon. But you know what? Their final word is not final. And there is something stronger than death. And they don't know it all. And for their impressive, powerful show, their swagger, and their well-dressed appearance, you know what? The truth is finally out in the open and the emperor has no clothes. It is a farce. It is a charade. And the real power, the ultimate authority, the final say on reality is Jesus. And this Jesus, while yes, he may be at the bottom, he can be trusted because he has revealed that the system that decides who's on top and who's on bottom is a joke to begin with. And oddly, part of trusting Jesus is aligning ourselves to this same collision course with the powers that be that Jesus did. And so in a totally weird and backward way, the suffering that Paul endured at the hands of the state was actually to him an assurance that he had trusted the right one and that he was faithful to his holy calling of standing up to what was unjust and unmerciful. So this is why our heroes like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany and Martin Luther King Jr. in America spent time in jail and were later both killed. This is why Dorothy Day received so much backlash against her Catholic workers movement And this is why so many Latin American priests and pastors have been slaughtered by cartels and rebels. It's not because these people are doing something wrong. It's because they're doing something right. They are living in holy defiance of unjust and unmerciful and unethical human powers and systems. And they say, we know who we have trusted. And from their witness we also can learn to trust. Now, if it sounds depressing to you, I'll take that. I feel that sometimes. If it feels like a heavy weight to carry, if it feels like bad news and the gospel is supposed to be good news, okay, hang with me. Paul is not harsh, nor is he fatalistic in his tone with Timothy, because Paul, in his age, has learned to speak in the same tone that the Spirit speaks to him. And we can learn the same. He communicates with a mix of both a command, but then a nurturing tone that allows us to take on that command. He says, this is what you need to do, but at the very same time, you have all the necessary resources to do it. He doesn't call Timothy to do more, to study more, to work more, to do it harder, to do it better, to put in longer hours, but he calls him to remember. 
Remember the gifts you have been given and put them to good use. He says the spark is already there. You don't have to create the fire from scratch. Just fan it into flame. The very good news in this call to courageous faithfulness is that the Spirit has already provided all the ingredients we need. And he lists them. We don't have a a spirit of power. I mean, we don't have a spirit of fear or timidity. The spirit of God is not timid or fearful. And so neither are we. The spirit provides power. And the spirit provides love, which bends that power in a certain direction and enables us to operate on a love that goes far beyond our own affection or feeling. And we are propelled by the power and the love of God himself. And then the third gift of the Spirit is something like self-discipline, self-control, discretion, moderation, prudence. It's a word that can be translated a whole lot of different ways. It, it t- paints a picture of having control over one's actions and thoughts so that it prevents rash behavior and gives us a balanced assessment of situations to use a word that we are saying often among us. The Spirit provides discernment. It enables us to make good and wise and balanced decisions. And so it is this gift, these gifts of the Spirit, that both define and enable us to live out this faithfulness we have been called into. It's not something that we have to produce or muscle up on our own. On Sunday mornings, as Pastor Chris said, we've been gathering here to pray in kind of holy, prayerful conversation with one another about the dreams we have as a church. We've been trying to notice what God is doing in and around us and to take time to ponder what that might mean for us. So we've invited people to respond and then we've put them on a board and I think we have pictures Uh, of some of our responses. So when we asked what is happening in our neighborhood um, in the different places that determine our neighborhood, these are the answers that we got. And the different sizes uh, relate to how many people or how many times these things were, were said in a group of about 50 people. So obviously we can see the stuff that's coming right to the top. We all are aware that our church is growing. And we're all aware that It's growing in one part by having more children. We're growing into diversity. There's the city is being rebuilt and revitalized around us. And yet at the very same time, there's issues like loneliness and division and physical hurts and unwellness. There's transformation and change, but there's also desire to see God at work. And then when we asked, where do we see uh, healing and justice and forgiveness, these things that are, are kind of the, the signs of God at work, overwhelmingly people responded that they see them in you, in us, together, the people of the 8th Street Church, in families, in parish groups, in loving and intentional relationships in the Sparrow Project, in an uncommon collective. These things are happening. 
among us, around us already. And then we asked people to share their dreams. What do we dream about as a congregation together? And we dream that the 8th Street Church would be a place where people are welcome, where we extend the table of hospitality, that it would be a place of healing. And reconciliation is mentioned twice, once in uh, specifically to racial reconciliation, that it would be a place of peace, that it would be a place of family, that it would be a place that gives life. These are our dreams. And as we've been in these practices together, I've, I've realized some important things. I've realized that we too are on a collision course with the powers that be, the powers that be of systemic racism and prejudice, elitism, competition, violence, the powers that be that tell us that kids only need to be entertained and put away. But I think maybe one of the most important things that I have recognized in our times together on Sunday morning is that indeed the Spirit is already giving us what we need for faithful, courageous action. I've also noticed that we have a shared holy calling right in our seats They are our children. I have found great hope and purpose this week as I've studied this text and lingered on Paul's reference to Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. They spent countless hours with poopy diapers, whatever diapers were back then, They spent time telling stories and praying for and then trying to get Timothy to pray with them. And I'm sure that there were days that Timothy came home and they were fearful by the questions that he asked or the realities that he was encountering. And somehow... These women of Timothy's biological family, along with Paul and the many others of his adopted God family, were able to steer Timothy through treacherous waters and raise him in a way that he could trust. That he could trust. In a way that he could serve they, they couldn't make anything for Timothy. They couldn't do anything for him, just like I can't for my children. But they could and they did provide him an example of living in the Jesus way. A way of life marked by love, not living in fear. A way of life that lived with power, tempered by love and with clear-headed, wise, self-disciplined discernment. And so I, nor you who are parents, 
can create our children's experiences with Jesus. I can't make them know Jesus or trust Jesus any more than I can protect them from the world. But I can trust that the same Jesus who found me and that has taught me to trust him can do the same. And I also can help my kids by living in such a way that I get to point to a Jesus who is beautiful and trustworthy and good. And I can help them see the powers that be through the eyes of the power that is as they navigate this world that will far outlive me. And so I think us together, the 8th Street Church, we have a holy calling. Even while we wait to discover what else our holy calling is, we have a holy calling right here in our midst. That in a cultural climate that makes it so difficult to trust one another and trust our leaders and even trust Jesus himself, we can be trustworthy. And we can point with our lives to one who is even more trustworthy than us. In a moment, we will come to the table together. A place where we are invited to fan into flame the gifts that the Spirit has given to us. And while our musicians and servers come to prepare, I want to invite us into some moments of prayer. I have some questions for us to ponder and pray together as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we hear your invitation through Paul's words to pay attention to this small, smoldering fire of resurrection hope that you have given us. So we pause now to listen. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to fan this into full flame as you provide memories and scripture and the God victories of days past in our own lives and the saints that have gone before us. Would you remind us, Holy One, how you have found us, how you have proven yourself trustworthy. And we ask that you would lead us to fan this gift into flame with time spent in your presence where we can voice our fears and our doubts and our discouragements honestly, but then also that we may receive the gifts of power and love and discernment that you freely give. So Lord, as we come to this table, remind us of your presence past and now. Remind us of your trustworthiness and fill us with your love 
with your power. Give us your gift of discernment that we may live courageously faithful lives, not only for our own sake, but on behalf of even our children among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, as he willingly walked into death, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his friends and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he passed the cup saying, this is my blood which was spilled for you. And so these are gifts that we receive. We invite you to come down your aisle with hands cupped because it's not something that can be taken. It's only a gift that can be received. And as you receive, receive the fullness of this story, this preposterously good and trustworthy king that is Jesus and find your place at his table doing his work. Our bread is gluten-free and our cup is non-alcoholic because we don't want any barriers here. So if you are willing and ready to receive all that Jesus has to give and all that it entails for our lives, you are invited to come. So as you are ready, friends, Please come.